Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I'll start off with a quick reminder that Tales to Terrify is once again in the running for the annual People's Choice Podcast Awards. But as July winds to an end, so too does your chance to cast a vote. And of course, being the People's Choice Awards means we don't stand a chance without you. Luckily, casting your vote is dead simple. Head over to podcastawards.com, hit the blue Click Here to Vote button, and follow the prompts from there. You'll find Tales to Terrify in the Fiction category. And we'd kill for you to throw a ballot in for us. Seriously, send me your hit list, and if we win, I'll see what I can do. Again, that's podcastawards.com. Ultimately, any vote for Tales to Terrify isn't just for the podcast itself. It's a vote for the twisted creative works of the narrators and writers that we have the privilege to share with you each and every week. Tales that chill you, unnerve you, and, hopefully, make you check under the bed every now and then before climbing in. Speaking of chilling tales, the rusted iron gates of our submission platform are beginning to quiver. And you know what that means. That otherworldly portal is very close to opening. But the horrible sustenance it craves after waking has a very specific flavor this time. 
for the appetizer at least, haunted houses. Why are good haunted house stories so hard to come by these days? Or is that just me? It's been one of my favorite tropes since before I was even old enough to really, responsibly, be reading serious horror. There's just something about a building that's taken on an unlife of its own that makes the hackles raise on the back of my neck. That aesthetic of old, peeling wallpaper and crumbling, mold-covered stairs, sagging ceilings and creaky floorboards. I have to say, as an aside, I think Stranger Things did a great job with the haunted house this last season. Gross and spooky in a very classic sort of way. Anyway, now it's your turn. This submission period is kicking off with an advance opening for Tales of Haunted Homes on August 1st. So, time to crack open that hidden wall safe, or rummage around in that disconcertingly not-so-unoccupied attic for any tales you've got squirreled away. Or, of course, barring that, maybe you've got a fresh one just itching to pour from your brain out through your fingers and onto the page. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions is where you can brush up on the details of our criteria, and it's also where those glowing cracks will transform into a gateway to our submission platform come August 1st. So sharpen your quills and top up your ink, because we're counting on you to scare our socks off. Lastly this week, we've had some great new reviews on Podchaser, from Carly Elaine Malo. I can't tell you how great it is when we get ratings and reviews, and we appreciate the kind words a lot, Carly. Hopefully, we've given you some chills to help cool down during these warm summer nights. Now, let's see if we can dig up some more of those this evening, shall we? We have one longer tale for you this evening, which comes from Shanoa Carol Brad. Shanoa Carol Brad writes fantasy and horror from her home in Southern California. Her short fiction has appeared in dozens of anthologies, magazines, and several podcasts, including her latest publication in The Dread Machine's Mixtape 1986 Anthology. She makes killer vegan bacon and has been learning German in order to sing along with her favorite bands. For updates on her new projects, you can find her on Facebook at SBCB Fiction, or for free fiction, info on previous publications, and links to live readings, visit her website at sbcbfiction.net. Children of the Night, join me for Shinoa Carol Brad's She Is Me, first published as a standalone tale available on Amazon. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I wake in the forest, blood in my nose. It doesn't smell like mine, but it's hard to know what mine even means anymore. Sore and scratched, I remember little, except where I need to be. The cabin in the clearing. I run for it, faster on all fours than stumbling upright, though the pull of my muscles says that wasn't always the case. Orange and red goes the sun, slipping behind the spearpoint trees. Memory says the fingers of mist will soon follow, creeping between the trunks and turning the window panes into shower-fogged mirrors. So much the better for my hunting. I slow my lolloping run as I reach the edge of the clearing where the cabin sits. I remember how it smells inside. Cinnamon oil and artificial pine. A fake cleanliness to convince its temporary occupants that it's somehow different from the land it sits upon, immune from dirt and decay. My fingers flex in the needle-rich soil beneath the trees. Parked in front of the cabin is the machine that brought them here. Noisy, smelly. It doesn't belong in this place any more than the people I sense cowering inside. I stretch my long spine and crawl from the trees to their vehicle, keeping it between me and the windows. The cabin is small, just one or two rooms, squat and ugly, 
out of place with its corners and angles and naked metal parts. Not as grave an affront as the car, all stolen steel and black blood, but still. It doesn't belong. They don't belong. And none of them deserve to stay. I slide over the dirt to the low front porch and crouch below the right front window. The inside thrums with electricity. It buzzes like hornets, like meat wasps. They'll need it when the sun fully goes down, to see, to keep warm. They are not adapted to survive out here without cheating. The man and woman are still inside. I can smell them, feel them vibrate in a different way from their electricity. The hood of their vehicle is still warm from the sun and their arrival this afternoon. There had been four of them then. Now I hear only two. They are filled with fear and grief. They stink of loss. Inside, one cries, muffled like the sound is half-hidden in a stifling hand. Plaid curtains, striped cardinal red and evergreen, cover the windows, mimicking the colors of the forest as they shut out the sight of it. Heretics. I cannot see witches weeping, but I'll take that one first. Shh. I think I heard something. A pause. I wait, unmoving, as the one who'd spoken listens for me. A game. What fun. The floor creaks, moving away from me and toward the griever. If you have to do that, go into the bedroom. Harsh. Strong. My lips peel back. That one will be worth the chase. The word they used for me, though. Something, I whisper, sibilant and cracked. It takes all my breath to form that one word, but it feels false on my tongue. Born dead after all that labor. I spit it out. With it comes the tickle of bristling hair in my teeth, short strands caught along my gum line. The blood on my face, in my nose. Did it come from the weeping one? I yearn to wash out my mouth with more, to scrub my teeth clean on bone. The crying one doesn't obey, doesn't move away. She's come back for McMurph, it sniffles. I fish in my mouth with filthy fingers, pulling out one of the hairs. It's as long as my thumb, glistening black and white in the dying light. Not hair, then, but fur. Must have been hard to bite through with these two flat teeth, but I obviously managed. I check my hands, nails neither short nor long but painted a yellow so pale the lines of dirt and blood show faintly through the other side. They're not the claws I might have wished for, but they too seem up to the task. Stop being hysterical, the harsher voice commands. These woods are full of wild animals. We don't know what did that to the dog. The voice drops low, but does not relent its power. 
or what took our daughter. Daughter. I try on that name, but it sits no better than something. Am I the daughter? I look down my dark-smeared front, my scratched and seething arms. Or am I the taker? The evening light is less fiery now, more bruised than burning. In the window above, not even a crack hangs between the curtains for me to peer in. I have an all-powering drive to get inside, where the voices are. It's not about the cabin, because if they bolted now, I would follow. It's something about them, and the not knowing is making me rabid. What are you talking about? There's nothing big enough out here to take. I tap one fingernail against the window pane, short and sharp. The arguing voices go silent. I tap again, grinning, and drag my nail against the glass until it squeals. She's here. Shut up. Before their footsteps can approach, I'm already away, slinking around the cabin corner, my back against the rough plank wall, moving to the next window, testing and seeking. They've given me the correct name at last. She is me, and I am her. And they're never getting her back. Through the window over the cabin's small sink, I see them. The curtains are cracked just wide enough for one staring eye. The man hunches in a chair by the table, in profile to me. He wipes his nose on his coat sleeve. Wet eyes fixed on the woman who creeps toward the front window I just left. Her hands clutch a shotgun. She carries herself like a hunter. It's good to see them. It's good to fix their images in my mind and to see the space they're forbidding me from. I knew the mother was armed before I ever saw so. I felt the iron in her voice. Perhaps the man is armed too, but... The slump of his shoulders tells me he's no threat. Where the mother blazes, the father crumbles. A memory comes to me. When they arrived earlier, the woman had groused that the place smelled stale. The landline was dead and the front door had neither screen nor lock. This recovered fragment gives me an idea. I locate a rock nearly the size of my head. Before, hefting this rock would have required both hands and earned protest from the narrow shoulders. But now it swings at the end of my arm like an impossibly solid fist. I peek through the window glass once more, wrap my knuckles on it, and then I am away. Back to the front of the cabin. I creep across the porch, the stone cradled at my belly, my knees bent so deep they almost touched the creaking boards. Inside, the woman shushes her partner. She's tracking me by sound, or trying to. Good for her. Hunter to hunter, I wish her the best. I stop on the hinged side of the door, and my left hand grips the handle. 
Will she fire? She must know I'm right at their doorstep. As I twist the handle, there come two synchronized gasps, but no weapon blast. Once the handle turns as far as it will go, the weight of my hanging arm swings the door inward. Some of their false light leaks out as the gap between them and me widens and then stops. No wider than the span of two spread hands, I let it hang there, like a held breath, feeling the heat of their fixed stares. You son of a bitch. The woman's voice lashes out from only a few feet away. I swear, I'll kill you if she's... A shaking breath undercuts her brave bark. If you've hurt her... Hurt her? I flex my wrist joints, roll my shoulders, my neck. Being in this body makes it faster, more agile, and the scratches I woke up with in the woods are already smoothing over. So her volume and knowledge do not align. The woman's ragged breathing is the only sound from inside. The weeper has finally silenced himself. She's waiting for a response to her challenge. A sound, an action, some proof her threat is understood. Grinning, I deny her even that. I have a gun, she tries next, and I will not hesitate to blow you away. Her voice is harsh, raw, animalistic. If she isn't careful, she'll turn herself into me. And yet, I find her statement fascinating. Their sanctuary is compromised, but neither approach to seal the breach. And she speaks of her weapon, but doesn't use it. Does she only have a few shots left? Unwilling to waste bullets on a warning? Holding back until she has me squarely in her jaws? Or does the gun bear no ammunition at all? Just another empty roar. I lift the rock over my head with both hands and hurl it past the open door at what I judge to be head height. The blur of motion should confuse them, should provoke attack. The stone flies across the porch, crashing into the underbrush on the far side. It arcs farther than expected, farther than I could have possibly thrown it before, with limbs that feel longer than they are, with great, ropey muscles hidden under such innocuous, slightly sunburned flesh. The pink, flaky dehydration remains while the scratches more recently sustained have healed. Distraction loosed, I bend back until my hands meet the rough wood boards, belly up, keeping me low and out of sight of the cloth-covered windows. Backwards, I crawl, folded wrong, but scurrying fast off the deck and around the right corner again, opposite the direction where my diversion landed. The woman is sharp. She won't be fooled by the ploy for long. I wanted to see if the sudden blur of my stone's motion would induce her to panic. But still, she did not fire. Her failure to shoot tells me just as much as if she had. Possibly even more. 
Through the window I previously peeped at, over the kitchen sink, I see my rock has done its job. The man crouches at the right-hand front window, pulling aside the curtain to look out just the way I'm peering in the side now, like we're two reflections in a pair of mirrors facing each other. What does he see out there? Not me, that's for sure, unless out front waits the snarled back of another person's head, staring elsewhere and somewhere behind me, someone observes all through another layer of seemingly safe remove. Him and me, she and her, we are frozen here for just this moment, reflected back upon each other into eternity. But then the woman stalks forward with her unfired gun and yanks open the cabin door. I leave the window and wrap my fingers around the trellis affixed to the cabin wall, clotted with the brown remains of a twining ivy planted here for beauty, not because it belonged. The forest starved it and kept in place its lacy withered corpse. I put up one foot and start to climb, feeling the trellis strain under my weight. One of the nails squeals as it's dragged part way out of the wall. No good. The huntress will have heard that. Down I slither, and keeping low, I run around the back of the cabin, where a squat brick chimney protrudes up the rear wall. It reminds me of something. Someone? Flushed with heat and blood. But as quickly as the memory surfaces, I push it away. I dig my yellow fingernails into the crumbly mortar and climb. Up on the roof, I clutch borrowed arms around the cold chimney, tilt my face over that dark opening and listen. The sounds of movement in the cabin below peak and subside, climaxing with a slam as the front door I opened is secured once more. That is fine. Let them seal themselves in and think it makes them any safer. No matter how, I will get in. I peer into the chimney and lean forward, extending both arms inside, deep past the elbows and nearly up to the shoulders. The space is tight, barely wider than me at my broadest. Its dark throat waits. They expected me at their windows and door, but will they think to fear what comes crawling down the flue? The cabin is old, the chimney not likely to have been updated or improved. I can probably slither my way through no matter how many joints I'll have to pop out of place. I pour half my body down the chimney, blood pooling in my face as I hang in the dark, eyes open but peering at nothing ears straining for the heartbeats of prey. Arms outstretched and fingers spread, I feel where the brickwork cinches in farther down. I can only compress this body so much before it breaks down into unusable meat. This vertical avenue is closed to me. Reeling myself back out of the chimney, my right foot lands too hard on a shingle. It splits beneath my weight, cracks just like the crown of a skull. The sound is not terribly loud, and yet it sends the cabin below into utter silence, 
I picture them both, frozen in place, staring up at the ceiling, barely daring to breathe. Do they hold each other, clutching tight? I plant my feet, my knees bent and spine curled so that my left ear hovers only a few inches from the roof itself. It smells like wet dirt, holding the moisture from decades of mists and rains. Just as suddenly as the silence descended, it breaks again with the muffled sounds of a struggle. Shoe soles slide on the wood flooring, tracking some sort of push and pull, punctuated with the quiet grunts of people who know they are being overheard. No, stop it, one hisses. The voice is too low for me to distinguish whether it is the woman or the man. Give me... One set of feet land heavier on the planking. The struggle concluded. Don't! With a click and a deafening roar, the roofing only a foot from my face explodes upward. Shattered bits bite my cheeks and forehead. A beam of light punches out of their world and into mine. Ears ringing, skin stinging, I scrabble to perch on the peak of the little cabin's roof. I can't afford to linger where I was before. You idiot! The woman's voice breaks through the buzz of my damaged hearing. She must not know how loud she's being. The proximity to the blast must have shattered her senses as well. We only have one shot now. And what if you hit her? I don't care. Whatever that is. He pauses just long enough to inhale, but I imagine him pointing one finger up at the roof, at me, jabbing as if he could stab me through the heart. It's not the girl I raised. Stay here if you want, but I'm getting out. More sounds of a struggle, and then the front windows rattle. Light spills onto the dirt outside. If he leaves this place calmly, I might let him go. A slow, confident stroll would bore me into disinterest, especially while the woman still burns with intoxicating fury below. But if he runs, I will be forced to give chase. Those are the rules of living and dying. I drop into a crouch and prepare. Clomping across the porch boards, the man races out onto the front drive. Something jingles in his flailing right hand. Saliva fills my mouth. He's chosen to flee. The rectangle of light disappears as the woman slams the door behind him. He makes his way to the vehicle, shoulders hunched as he glances all around, as if there are more of me, infesting the shadows and branches above as if one is not more than enough. As the vehicle growls to life and the headlights flare on, an idea comes to me. A way to use him once caught. Taking a running start down the cabin roof, I leap into the branches of the nearest tree, and from there, scramble leap to the next one, and the next, keeping pace with the reversing car as it spins around, 
and starts crunching its way down the gravel drive. This path winds a while before meeting the wide asphalt road that I remember. And while trails and haunts are common things, this human-made path angers me. It has no right to exist here so purposefully. To be built with such intention? It and the cabin and the metal box huffing noxious fumes as it attempts escape? All of them are insults. And all will be answered for. He's running like a rabbit. And yet, through the dark, the fear, the rising mist and the unfamiliar woods, he is not fleeing fast enough to outpace me. On several turns, his tires skid and spit stones. He's running slow enough to be caught, but fast enough to lose control. How delicious. I overtake him in the trees and find the place he must come to where the road takes a sharp leftward bend and the boughs overhang, dense and close. As this car approaches, I break a heavy branch from overhead. It's nearly as thick around as my neck, a branch that could have supported my weight, and one I never could have dreamed of breaking before. He'll have to drive right beneath me to reach the main road. If he makes it, he'll survive. He'll win. He draws closer. I will have to time this exactly. I throw the branch down directly in his path. It's too sudden for him to see clearly what he's hitting, just a blur of motion and the impact. As soon as the branch leaves my hands, I turn and tear a big bite out of my right forearm, the one not holding me secure on the branch. Below, he slams on the brakes and skids, bumping roughly over the branch I've thrown. As soon as he hits it, I spit a mouthful of blood. As soon as he hits it, I spit a mouthful of blood across his windshield, blinding him in red. The car shudders to a stop off the gravel road, near the base of the trees, and the man tumbles out. His fine hair stands at odd angles his forehead smeared with a trickle of blood. He must have hit his head inside. How that must have rattled his poor nut meat, his already frayed senses. Oh my God. He staggers toward the branch, clutching his temples. Oh God, my baby. Tell me I didn't just hit my baby. Those words spark a sudden need within me, a burning inspiration. He's finally made himself interesting. He stumbles past the rear of the blood-smeared car, briefly awash in the ruddy taillights, and he peers down at what I've placed in his path. After a moment's inspection, his posture goes from grief to guarded again, shoulders raised, muscles tense. Slowly, he turns to look up at where I perch, grinning down with a face half-painted in his daughter's gore. That's who I am now, I realize. The woman and man are mother and father to this thing I am wearing, the she who sometimes gives me glimpses of context, 
of memory. I am her, and she is me. Almost two decades ago, all unknowing, this couple conspired to conceive their killer. Her father stares up at me, mouth agape, left eyebrow dark and rusty from his head wound. The collar of his shirt is twisted, turned wrong way up, the way McMurph's ear used to flop inside out when he was a puppy. She's trying to show me these things, to stop me, to make me care. I spring upon her father from the trees, landing on his fleshy torso, driving him straight back into the ground. The back of his head crunches against those rocks that someone much like him must have gathered from far away and spread out here, where they've never belonged. I sit on his chest and lean close. I need him now, for just a moment. I need him to speak his true words and let me feed upon the last light of hope just before it flickers out. That's why the woman couldn't bear to fire at me earlier. She had made me, and some part of her must still harbor hope that I can be saved. I drag him into the vehicle he so kindly left running, and the part of me that isn't me feels a memory through my arms and legs, reminding the muscles what to push and what to pull, and in what order to turn this behemoth back around. Why does she tell me this? Why not withhold? Maybe she hopes I will use the knowledge to return the man to the woman, where she thinks he belongs. Very well. I will. Starting and stopping, we drive back up the foul gravel road to where the little cabin waits. I stop a few lengths away from the porch, headlights pointed directly at the windows. If the woman tries to scout, she'll be blinded. The only way for her to see us clearly will be by opening the front door. Stolen memory guides me to set the vehicle in a waiting purr so I can drag the man outside. Movement flickers in the right cabin window. A curtain twitched aside and just as quickly dropped back into place. Dawn? The woman calls. She's not snarling like before when she strove to prove she had fangs worthy of my hide. This howl is weak and wavering, seeking reassurance. Don, is that you? Kill the lights for fuck's sake. I don't do as she says, but I help the man stand slightly to the left of the beams. His knees wobble, so I support him with one arm hooked around his chest. We stand there, staring at the illuminated eyes of the structure no one authorized to exist here. The trees, hacked down and piled up into restraining walls, certainly didn't get a vote. For a long moment, it seems she will stay in her stolen sanctuary. But then there's movement. There's the scraping of something heavy being dragged away from the front door. Then it opens, just a crack, and out pokes the woman's gun. 
Good for her. She sweeps her weapon to the right and then to the left, checking, I must assume, to make sure I don't crouch and wait on either side. When she sees me neither place, she opens the door wider and steps out, keeping the gun level at her hip and shading her eyes with the other hand. With little assistance, the man raises his arm and waves, joints lolling too loosely, the motion too wide. She leans forward, squinting against the glare. Don? I see her body go rigid in a wave straight up from her toes, and I know. She's just realized her husband has no head. I took it off after making him say what I wanted to hear and seeing in his eyes that he meant it. He truly believed. Now that the ruse is up, I let his body crumple forward. Dropping to all fours where I'm faster, longer loping, I charge her in the apex of her shock. Galloping, I come, long-limbed, wide-eyed, bare-toothed. She stands stock still for just one breath, frozen in the light, and then she sees me coming straight for her. She doesn't fire. She drops her muzzle to point at the porch and spins away, ducking inside, slamming the door in my face once more, just as I hurtle up the porch to reach it. I am more animal than anything in that moment, scrabbling against the wood with my paltry yellow fingernails, howling until I feel the walls shake. She's done it again. How could she? How dare she shut me out in my own domain? The door rattles between us, her answering grunts sounding so close as she uses her own body to block my efforts. It's me against her, as it has been since the start. Only she's trapped herself in her wooden burrow, and I won't be denied entrance long. I leave her pressed against the door and skitter away. Let her wonder what my sudden silence means. Let her breathe a sigh of relief that the onslaught has ended. I return to the humming vehicle, whose beams still glare straight at the cabin's front. Memory tells me what I could do. Cunning tells me elsewise. I turn my glare upon the cabin as well. If the woman won't let me through the door, I'll damn well make my own. This time I don't sit in the driver's seat. Instead, I lean in through the open door and grab the bloody nest of hair atop the thing resting in the passenger seat and soaking the cushion and cloth structure with gore. Finally, a smell of nature in this monstrosity. I wedge the eight pounds of skull and brain and skin against the pedal on the floor, pressing hard enough to ensure it sticks and feeling the bones protest and creak. The engine howls. With my other hand, I make sure the wheel is properly aligned with the porch. Then I push the stick shift into D. Away the vehicle roars, spurting forward so fast I nearly lose my arm to the lurching doorframe. With a wet snap, my elbow bends the wrong way, 
but my greedy gaze never leaves the vehicle launching forward into the defiler's cabin. Up the porch it ramps, not perfectly aligned as I had hoped, but chewing through the wood just as well. It smashes through the front of the cabin before veering off and taking a dive out the left wall and down into the trees. It did enough. Half the roof collapses, and only the wall to the right of the chimney still stands, though it sags and groans like rotten nails being tugged out of weathered wood. Surveying the wreckage, my wide, wide... Surveying the wreckage, my wide, wide smile dims. I breached her holdout, but did I go too far? Had she stayed in front of the door, bracing it against renewed attack? Or had her huntress's instincts anticipated my change in tactics? Had she heard the engine rev a split second before it came barreling in, just long enough to dive for cover? Sudden terror washes through me, the first time I felt fear since donning this false face. Had fury at being shut out overridden my instincts and allowed my prey to be crushed by grand retaliation? Off to the left, the trees stopped the car with a bang and a crunch. That's fine. My use for it is done. But the woman, the mother... Her use still burns keenly in me, so long as I haven't killed her. I scramble into what's left of the cabin, crawling on all fours, digging my hands under cracked plaster and beams, searching for my prize. Beneath a triangular fragment of ceiling, I find her, bleeding in the dust but still breathing. Partially buried under the wreckage, only her shoulders and head are visible. The rest of her is caught beneath rubble and debris. Her eyes are shut, with twin tracks of wetness drawing a clear line from her eyelashes across her temples and into her brown-gray hair. Part of her left side is visible, too, where dark blood stains her shirt. Fragile Huntress, something has punctured her. I have to be quick. I can't let her die just yet. I slap her slack white cheeks, raising little puffs of the sheetrock and dust, and leaving long shadows on her skin from my fingers. Her eyelids flutter, but it isn't enough. I shake her shoulders next and resort at last to clearing the wreckage enough to yank up her bloody shirt and squirm my fingers into the wound. That opens her eyes, and gasping, she comes back to me. Her gaze doesn't focus on me for the first half second, and by the tightening of her rigid muscles, I could tell that brief moment of not knowing had been bliss. I need her to say it, though. I crave to hear it with my stolen ears, spoken from the tongue of their creator. I have not ridden this body long, but for the first time, I have actual need of its speech. I crack my jaw from side to side, feeling the stretch of it, the limits. I have used it only for biting and tearing, for howling and grinning, 
Now I need to make it speak. Where? I growl in a voice more than half air. The woman's eyes go wider still. I smell it on her. The misunderstanding. The hope. Katie? She dares to ask. As I crouch above her, cat and prey, playing with her final moments, she still dares to ask. As if my face could just be peeled off. As if my body hasn't tasted so much loyal blood. Where is... I press forward, each word feeling like the bending backward of a finger, the wearing of shoes on the wrong feet. This body has made the sounds before, but not me, and here is where the gross puppetry must become art. Her eyes still wide, she leans towards me, rising up on one shaky elbow and nodding to me, encouraging me forgetting whose nails have just dug into her wounds. You can say it, baby. I can hear you. Where is what? Tell me what you need. Her understanding. That is all I need. Her understanding and acceptance. Where? I bare my borrowed teeth enunciating carefully. Is your little girl now? The eyes stay large, but I see the understanding trickling in. She had fought so hard not to hurt me, protecting me for the form I wear, even after I took her animal from her, then her man. Even as I brought her sanctuary down around her ears, she still clung to the thought her spawn might come back. Her husband had too, until I caught him, despite what he had previously so bravely claimed. And she had thought it too, after everything. Why? I lean down until our faces are within striking distance, showing her my teeth, letting the beast in me slaver, unfettered. I haven't decided how I will kill her, but now that she is here, immobilized and trapped, perhaps I will... She drops back from her elbow, all strength in her posture gone, and closes her eyes once more. I hate to see it, the embarrassing end. The lioness who chooses starvation once caught in a trap instead of chewing through a bony paw. But I see what I wanted from her. The hope has fled. She's been deflated, and now she's just pieces to be taken apart, like her husband, like the cabin. Say it. I rasp above her. Did she think she could fix me? Bless me? Rescue me? As suddenly as the possession began, did she think it could be undone? After all the chasing, the hunting, I want her to admit the truth so I can 
end her and leave the soiled place to its slow reclamation. Eyes closed, tears leaking through the dirt. She whispers something. She's gone, perhaps? I'm done, perhaps? Lips curling with triumph. I tilt my ear closer. Say it. The wreckage shifts as she twists beneath me, and the shotgun's hard muzzle presses against my breastbone. Her eyes open again, not wide, but tight with hatred. Fuck you. She pulls the trigger. I wake in the forest, blood in my nose and ringing in my ears, but knowing my name once more. Knowing the painful meaning of mine. Knowing everything that has transpired beneath my hands. Knowing exactly what I have done. I am Katie, and I am alone. Besides the fading wine in my ears, the forest around me is quiet. Not silent, as there are nature sounds as the sky begins to lighten far off to the... West? That's not it. I can't remember which way is right. Dad had an annoying rhyme for it, but I never really listened. There was no need to. At the time, I had the security of knowing he was just going to say it again later. Dad. I remember what I did to Dad. I want to be sick, but I hold it back, too terrified of what might come up. Cold blue light picks out the ragged tops of pine trees. Dawn is here, but my parents are gone. Whatever was inside me has fled, too. I am alive, but I have not survived. Intact, I am a ruin. My hands come up to pat my chest, where the shotgun blast should have destroyed me. I feel skin through the tattered scraps of my shirt, cool in the early morning air. Sore, but not broken. My hands are caked in filth and blood, my jaw sore, two teeth loose, but otherwise I am still together. Slowly, I sit up from my bed of matted pine needles. The blast should have killed me. Whatever was inside me last night, whatever kept healing me from the scratches, the bite I took of myself, the arm broken by the car door, it must have knitted me back from that trauma, too. But Mom did it. She saved me. From where I sit, I can see the Range Rover's rear bumper through the trees, where it stopped after ramming the cabin. The running lights are still on. I wonder if my dad's head is still lying in the footwell. I shuffle to my feet and follow the long streaks of dark blood, much darker than mine ever looked, as it draws a clear trail back toward the ruined cabin. 
This must be where she dragged me after we were shot. Brought me out in the woods to die. Like a dog. Like McMurph, wherever he got off to. Mom? I call, feeling the burn as my parched throat cracks under the pressure of that word. My head swims and I go down hard on my knees, forced to crawl along the clotted trail, too dizzy now to stand. No answer from Mom and no more loping on all fours for me. I glance up, reminded that I won't be swinging and leaping between tree branches either, something I never would have tried if I had stayed me. There's so much I never would have done if I just stayed me. The first thing I come across is what's left of my father's body, lying abandoned where I left it on the gravel road before launching his car at the front door. How strange it looks. How deflated and small. Without his head, my father resembles a pile of blankets lumped up on the side of the road. His arms that had once offered monkey swings and airplane rides, now limp as poorly stuffed dolls, right elbow still bent from where I made him wave. I should know better than to do so, but as I crawl past him, I glance over my shoulder at the ragged stump where his neck used to be. The bone and gristle are air-drying, but the meat of him swarms with tiny black ants. The wild space wasting no time in breaking down what doesn't belong. Skin alive with phantom inching. I continue on. Mom? I croak again. Sounding less human the harder I try. From my angle of approach, I can see the Range Rover's front is smashed. The front left tire flat. I can't drive it out of here. And turning back toward the cabin's remnants, I know there's no point in attempting a rescue. My mother's sneakered foot sticks up out of the mess, her jeans tattered and stained. On her shin bone perches a crow, digging flecks of red out of her ankle and eyeing me sideways. If she were alive, my mom would react to that. The wound would bleed. The breeze picks up, ruffling the crow's feathers, and make me clutch tight to the parts of my shirt still hanging from the armholes. I remember putting this shirt on only a day ago, before my life was shattered. It used to be a comfy pink baby tee that read, Happy Camper. I wore it ironically, because I sure as hell hadn't wanted to spend my weekend out in the dirt and trees. If only my parents had listened. The wind through the trees sounds like hushing voices. Sounds like gossiping whispers. Sounds like something not used to speaking, trying to ask me a question. Well, to hell with that. Gripping my tattered shirt, I stagger onto the gravel path, now scattered and blurred from wild tire tracks. My dad was so proud when he hired the men to lay this road. Much safer than the old dirt road, he said. 
same kind of crushed white quartz as his boss installed around the water features at work. My footsteps crunch along it, almost, but not quite, drowning out the forest's whispering, its hoots and disapproving clicks. All I know is that the path leads to the highway, and the highway will lead me back where I belong. I'm numb now, and that's a blessing. Soon enough, I'll be asked to explain what happened here, how a peaceful family getaway turned into a red-handed annihilation. I'll have to use the walk back to town to think of something good, because I know I can't tell them the truth. No one would believe a word of it if I told them who I became when she was me. I'll have to tell them a lie, something they can wrap their heads around, something believable like my parents fought and mom grabbed a gun. Sorry, mom. I ducked into the woods for safety, and then dad, sorry dad, crashed the car into the cabin to get back at her. That wouldn't explain his head coming off, nor how far from his body it lay. But people would have an easier time accepting that than understanding what really happened. And how did it start, someone is likely to ask. What was the fight about? I stagger along the gravel road. How did it all start? With my shitty attitude, of course. My sneaker soles scrape along keeping up their trudging pace without needing input from up top. I had complained about every part of the trip, the length of the drive, the music on the radio, the sunlight lancing through the side window burning me in the back seat, the lack of iced coffee at the little gas station where we refueled the Range Rover, the state of the bathroom there as well. By the time we actually arrived at the cabin... I was primed to never like anything ever again. I slammed the car door. I rolled my eyes at everything asked of me. I picked at Mom's last nerve with a fervent attention that could have gotten me straight A's if it had been directed toward my homework. I yelled at her and Dad for dragging me out here where I never wanted to be and grabbed McMurph from where he was happily marking the front porch edges and chasing fat forest flies. We went to the little creek that ran not too far from the cabin, its roof and chimney still in sight through the trees. I remember glancing at it, never dreaming that soon I'd be scrambling around on top, dodging wild shotgun blasts. Is that why she chose me? Because I made so clear my desire to be literally anywhere else? I threw rocks in the creek, watching McMurph charge in after the fading ripples, but even his trusty gesturing couldn't bring back my smile. I just wanted to go. I wished I had the guts to climb in Dad's Range Rover and drive myself back to Seattle, back to my bed and my vinyls and my friends. Mom and Dad could walk their asses out of the woods for all I cared. Just like I'm doing now. I stewed while the sun burned low, the dumb woods fading into rust and shadow. I knew I needed to return soon, 
If I stayed out too long, I might get lost, and Mom and Dad would have to come looking for me. It's impossible to be righteous and mad when you're lost and alone, scared in the woods. I had turned to go back. But then the whispering started in the trees. The sounds of a million leaves rustling in patterns that almost, but not quite, formed intelligible words. McMurph stopped playing. Tail stiff and ears flat, the creek water running off his shaggy belly. He'd glared at the trees around us and growled, turning a slow circle, letting the whole forest hear his warning. He threatened everything, nothing, all at once. That sound sent prickles up my spine. My happy boy has never used his voice in such a way before. Deep and sharp, a tumbling wave of stones ready to snap an ankle if the line were crossed. I told him to shut up. I put out a hand to soothe the hackle standing up along his back. I thought he was just a city dog spooked by the sound of wild wind. That he, like me, didn't belong out here and knew it. But his eyes showed so much white they looked almost human in their terror, and my teeth suddenly felt like a solution. And then I awoke in the forest, dog blood in my nose and all over my face. Now I understood all the scratches on my arms and chest. My good boy fought to the death whatever had climbed inside me. And my rider won. I don't know where his body is, and I'm too afraid to go back in the woods to look. I hope the police will find him when they come to investigate. Maybe there's something nice they can do for him. He deserves something nice. He was a teddy bear goof, and I hate the idea of him lying out here somewhere, far from his people, with weeds shooting up between the pad of his big dumb paws. I struggle out of the woods and on to the solid lane of the blacktop road, feeling watched and whispered about. Did the shotgun blast drive out that dark presence? Or had it ridden me just until the final trespasser was punished, leaving me alive to spread the warning? I rub filthy hands over the goosebumps on my arms. I'll tell them, I croak to the surrounding trees keeping my steps quick so there can be no misunderstanding my desire not to linger. But I can't promise they'll stay away. Especially not when they see what a mess we've made. There will be investigations, cleanup crews, a demolition company to extract the infected root of the cabin from the forest's jaw. I hope for their sakes that their jobs wrap up before the sun starts to set and the whisperer has to take one of them and start the cycle all over again. But I will tell them. I will stay away from where I don't belong. And I will remember. Long as I live, I'll never forget how it felt when I was her and she was me. 
That was Shinoa Carol Brad's She Is Me, as read by Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a bit of a television addict and enjoys putting her sci-fi media geek skills to good use and interviewing guests. She has been a co-host for Slice of Sci-Fi from 2005 to 2009, the co-host for The Babylon Podcast from 2006 to 2012, and host of Kick-Ass Mystic Ninjas, before returning to Slice of Sci-Fi full-time as host and producer in August of 2014. She is an avid reader and writer of sci-fi, fantasy, and thrillers, with a handful of publishing credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy tale and a B-movie monster extravaganza. Currently, Summer designs and maintains websites for clients in addition to having fun with the Slice of Sci-Fi websites and also does voiceover and narrations for Tales to Terrify, Starship Sofa, and Escape Pod, among others. Thank you, Summer. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invite the lurking horrors in with more Tales to Terrify. Thank you. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.